Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is Neil Desai, co-founder and CEO of Caffeine. Before Caffeine, Neil was a CFO at Octane Lending, a fintech unicorn, and he has 15 years of experience as a portfolio manager and a trader at companies like Alpine Partners, Summit Securities, and Merrill Lynch. Neil holds an MBA from the Wharton School and a BA from Princeton University. Join us as we discuss what is least to own, the challenges of disrupting a legacy industry, financing companies that operate as a marketplace, the value that an MBA added to Neil's journey, and much more. I would also like to give a shout out to the third annual Wharton FinTech Conference scheduled for March 30th and 31st. Tickets are now live and you don't want to miss the opportunity to hear from and network with fintech leaders. This year's lineup includes guests from Greycroft, UED Investors, Rebit, Visa, PayPal, Chime, Ripple, and many more. Go to whartonfintechconference.com or check out our LinkedIn page to get tickets. Now on to today's episode. Hey Neil, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? Doing good. Thanks for joining us today. Where are you running in from? I uh, am in our offices here in New York City. We are in, uh, in the Nomad area. Oh, wow. Well, I was in New York yesterday. It, uh, it's always <laughs> fun to go, th- go to that city and just see things. Yeah, hopefully you kept warm. The uh, temperature's dropping pretty quickly, as you, I'm sure you've noticed. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, let's dive into the questions right now. For our listeners who may not know, could you give an overview of your career? And how did you get started in fintech? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I was lucky enough to go to Princeton as an undergrad. And um, unfortunately, I spent most of my weekends in Atlantic City uh, playing blackjack, counting cards until I got thrown out of basically every casino in Atlantic City in the late 90s. Um, What I realized when I graduated in 99 was that I could take those game theory and statistical skills and actually apply them in a more legal fashion uh, by being a derivatives trader. And so I traded equity derivatives from 1999 through 2005. In uh, 2005, I went to Wharton to get my MBA. And following my MBA at Wharton, went back into statistical and relative value trading until 2016. 2016 was a pretty pivotal year for me uh, because I actually quit trading. And I quit for a couple of reasons. The biggest one was that I realized I was relatively passionless about it. The other reason I quit was that as I started to evolve and get um, a little more advanced in my career, I realized that it didn't meet certain characteristics, specifically around creating asymmetric upside for myself and really being long the beautiful beta that is this country. And so um, I wanted to do something different and I wanted to do something that like meant something to me and was a better economic structure. Um, what I realized in terms of the meaning element was that I was a builder. I had just never gotten the chance to build. And so what I did is I basically said, all right, what types of career paths can I pursue where I would be building something that are semi or at least partially related to the skill set that I have? And um, you know, pretty quickly, I realized I wanted to be in startups and that fintech was a natural area within the startup ecosystem that I should pursue and I was super lucky. I got introduced to uh, Jason Gus and Ray Duggins at Octane Lending and convinced them somehow to let me join their team. Um, actually made it pretty easy for them by saying they didn't have to pay me for a few weeks. Um, and I joined the team at Octane Lending, which is a power sports consumer lender. I was the 11th person in. 
And it was an absolute rocket ship. So, you know, by the time I left a couple of years later, the company was well through 100 employees and, you know, the, the company hit unicorn status uh, a, a couple of years ago. So it was just an amazing outcome. So you became the CEO at Octane. CFO. And CFO, sorry, my bad. Yep. And then you left that to, jo- to start your own venture. Yes. My question is, why? What motivated you? And did your experience having worked in a previous high growth startup help you out with this one? Yeah. So, you know, the interesting thing is, it's worth noting I had an entire career as a trader, right? And when I decided to move away from trading, um, I was pretty scared. So when I first got to Octane, um, I was really nervous about whether the career transition was the right move and whether I was going to be qualified for it. And my compensation mechanism was to just work incredibly hard. And by about the two-year mark, I started to realize that I was good enough as CFO that to the extent that for whatever reason I needed to get another job, I would probably get a CFO job somewhere, right? And that that was the first initial sort of de-risking that I think was necessary for my career before I could even think about um, going off on my own. But once I'd hit that um, sort of metric for myself, I was able to continue that journey that I started in 2016, which was largely around um, pushing my personal boundaries and really going out and trying to build. There's a ton of, I think, personal development and professional development that um, you can only achieve if you push yourself outside of your comfort zone. And one of the deals that I made myself, or one of the deals that I made with myself in 2016 was, like, and literally, and I, and I, and I, I promise you this is true, I have never backed away from anything because of fear in the last seven years. And when I looked at what I wanted to accomplish and the growth and professional growth that I wanted to have, uh, starting something on my own was the natural step. The only thing that would have been holding me back was fear. And I just absolutely decided I wasn't going to make decisions that way anymore. So, and kind of following on to that, when you made the decision to not let fear dictate your decisions, how did you go about it? What was your mantra to overcome whenever you came across a situation that you didn't feel comfortable in? Yeah, I think the first um, the first step I had to take was to really understand my emotions, right? And I think this is probably just good practice no matter what situation you're in. But um, you know, this idea of making decisions from a place that doesn't come from strength I've done a lot of reps. You can imagine as a trader, a position is going against you. You're scared to take risk. You're scared to layer on risk. I've done a lot of reps. And so I had to really come to terms with those types of demons early on in my career. I think the difference was that there's limited upside as a trader in terms of personal development, professional development. So it's actually fairly easy when you're trading to let fear of loss dominate your decision making and oftentimes we'll cover those things in terms of you know good risk management that's what that's what we call it right but it's really fear of loss most of the time and um in you know fintech and fintech startups when you see that the world is actually i shouldn't say the world this country is structured in such a way that if you go for it and you're willing to work hard uh, and you get a little bit lucky the world will open up for you and so if you are able to understand where your decisions are coming from and just acknowledge, hey, this is a decision that I'm making that might be fear-based. You can then go another level deeper and think about whether or not that's actually optimal or whether you're falling into a, 
you know, mental trap. Let's talk about caffeine. Mm-hmm. What is caffeine? What's its origins? Yeah. So, you know, I, um, I knew that I wanted to move on from Octane largely because of the success that that company had and the ability that I had to sort of learn from people who, um, you know, was so lucky to work with. I knew that I wanted to move on, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I did set up certain guidelines for myself, right? The guidelines were basically twofold. One, it had to be mission-driven. And two, it had to be a good business. So I started initially exploring some ideas in um, consumer lending in Thailand and helping farmers get you know better access to earned wages. And it was a credit product. And um, pretty quickly realized, number one, I didn't want to move to Thailand. But number two... There's a hundred million people in the United States that don't have access to credit. And, you know, oftentimes we ignore what's in our backyard. And once I started looking at the structure of the non-prime category in the United States, this massive set of the population that just can't access credit on fair terms, started to look at the problem crudely as a small dollar, big dollar problem. Okay. In the small dollar space, think of a few hundred bucks, while we may not like the options, the non-prime consumer has a lot of options. Okay, They can have a low-limit credit card. They can borrow from a friend. They can oftentimes get a payday loan. They can sometimes, from their employer, get a paycheck advance. So you know, three to $400 is obtainable. What is incredibly difficult is to obtain several thousand dollars. So what do you do when your refrigerator breaks? You know, If you're making $50,000 a year and you have you know, a credit card that has a $1,000 limit and it's $800 you know, filled, uh, your refrigerator bakes, breaks, you need you know $1,000 to replace it. How are you going to get that kind of buying power? There was a huge gap in the market there. And that's the problem that caffeine was started to solve, right? What caffeine does is it offers flexible, flexible financing options at point of sale. And I'll unpack that a little bit, okay? We essentially have two major stakeholders, our retailers and our and consumers. For the retailer, what we do is we facilitate sales that they ordinarily wouldn't be able to make. So if you think about the types of customers that walk into a typical furniture store, appliance store, et cetera, 50% of them are generally non-prime and they don't have the money to spend that couple of thousand dollars on whatever it may be that they need to purchase. We work with the retailer to facilitate that sale by giving that consumer that buying power. Um, We also are, unlike a lot of our competitors or perceived competitors, and that we don't charge the merchant a fee to do this. All of the pricing comes from the consumer. Okay? So for, from a retailer perspective, we're a, we're a home run. Um, on the consumer side, the most amazing thing about our product, I've referred to this flexibility. What I mean by that is it's not a debt product. It is technically a rental agreement where the consumer, if they make a sufficient number of rental payments, obtains ownership of the good. But the embedded flexibility within a rental contract is that it can be canceled. So if a consumer obtains a refrigerator for, you know, let's call it $1,500 and is making their monthly payments and finds that they either don't want to continue or they can't continue because of difficulties and other expenses or, you know, career instability, um, they can cancel. And when they cancel, we have the legal uh, mandate that we must go out and pick up that refrigerator. The customer's credit score is maintained. It's not dinged. There is no residual obligation. In short, the contract is completely cancelable. The other Amazing features are that we are cheaper than a credit card for most of our consumers in terms of the total financing cost paid, and we build credit. Last benefit that we offer is we fully warranty the purchase. So if something should go wrong with that refrigerator or dishwasher or whatever it might be, um, we are responsible for maintaining a very high quality of goods to the consumer. So you wrap all that together, 
And what you have is a pretty unique high dollar financing option that is really geared towards a demographic that needs this product in order to make that uh, purchase. That sounds super fascinating. You're offering so much to the consumers, not charging anything from the retailers. So my question is, how does Caffeine earn revenue? And who are your biggest segments of customers in terms of demographics and geographic spread? Yeah, so you know our, our segment is really the durable goods space. Okay, In order for our rental contract structure to apply, uh, the nature of the good has to be tangible and it has to be durable. Okay, So this is things like furniture, appliances, electronics, tire and wheel. What is interesting about these sets of categories is that they're generally speaking needs. Okay? You don't go buy new tires on your car because you want them. You buy them because one went flat or they're all you know, about to go flat. That needs element creates, and, and the fact that we're a rental business, not a loan, meaning that there's an asset there, creates repayment behavior that is quite strong. So if you look at our unit economics compared with the unit economics of an unsecured lender that was serving a similar FICO demographic, we have way stronger returns. Okay? We have, even in this environment, which I think we're going to touch on later, but even in this environment, uh, significantly positive unit economics and are profitable on every single sale. Um, we operate nationally and you know, we compete against other companies like Progressive Leasing, Qualify, Snap Finance. For the reasons I described about you know having cancellation flexibility and for our not being a debt product, I would not personally consider companies like Affirm or Klarna to be our competitive set. On that note, a lot of people confuse buy now, pay later with lease to own. Can you break it down how and why caffeine is different from buy now, pay later companies? Yeah. So if you think about companies like we just mentioned, buy now, pay later players out there, um, the first major difference is the category type. Okay, we are dealing in the needs category. Oftentimes, buy now, pay later is dealing in the wants categories, things like uh, you know, beauty products, clothing, et cetera, right? We're on appliances, electronics, tires, those types of things. So different categories. The second major point is that there is a huge difference in approval amount. Okay, so for one of our customers who gets approved by us, um, first of all, they're likely not going to get approved by the buy now, pay later companies. They tend to be, despite saying they serve the non-prime consumer, their average FICOs are in the 700 range, generally speaking. Even still, average approval amount is $300. Our average approval amount is $2,200. So when you think about the actual buying power that is being offered to the consumer when they are approved, um, you can quickly see that buy now, pay later is not going to have significant penetration in the categories that I described, because it's just not enough money. Third major difference is that, again, we like to refer to buy now, pay later. It's a catchy phrase, but look, it's just debt. Okay? It's debt where the merchant is subsidizing some of the interest cost. The customer is still stuck in a debt product. If they don't make their payments, if things change, if they get over-levered, their credit score is going to suffer, and it will follow them for years and years and years. That obligation will. In our structure, the customer can just cancel, and the... Um, you know, the agreement essentially disappears. The final element that I'll point to, which is, you know, just, again, meets that sort of good business test that I described earlier, our unit economics are multiples higher than the buy now, pay later guys. The buy now, pay later guys are in the low single digits. We have uh, healthier margins than that. And so when it comes to operating in different types of business cycles, uh, our product is a much stronger product from an investor standpoint. We look at the fact that you are giving a credit which is much higher than what traditional buy now later companies might be offering, right? 
and you're giving it to customers who might have a lower FICO score on average. It calls in the fact that you need to have like good risk management and underwriting capabilities to achieve that, right? How did you approach building this, especially when you first started? How was that algorithm developed? Are there any certain parameters that you use which traditional companies would not? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'll say is when we started, we weren't very good. And it's not our fault. It's just anyone who is thinking about going into a credit-related business should just understand that the first couple of years are going to be a challenge. You don't have enough data, you don't have the right data, and it's pretty hard to do. That being said, at this point, we have a significant number of data scientists and we have, it's the largest spend category in our firm is around uh, you know, the credit modeling and credit strategy. Um, we use extremely non-traditional data sets, things like cell phone number stability, number of utility bills that you have, how often does the person move, um, bank account behavior, right? Traditional credit metrics like FICO or Vantage scores don't really rank order well enough. And so um, while you can uh, try to use them as a proxy, what ends up happening is you will um, ultimately realize as your cohorts start to age that you're not making any money. I don't think that what we are doing is in any way... um, you know, rocket science to use the sort of traditional metaphor, but it is hard and it does require dedicated resourcing. And so one of the lucky benefits that we have as a firm is that my background in statistics and game theory is pretty well suited to help uh, understand where the pockets of profitability are and how to structure the right uh, team dynamics to go after this sort of opportunity. And when you decided to start caffeine and it's a personal industry that is traditionally not something that's considered very attractive even though i believe it's quite a large industry or, or a market right mm-hmm. what's up what are some challenges that you faced yeah we faced a lot of challenges but i'll focus on two in particular the first one is contrary to what everybody <laughs> what i said most most investors wanted we're not online yet our business is 99.9 in physical brick and mortar stores. And that is a function of us needing to be where our consumers are. Our consumers shop primarily in store. And when you think about the categories we serve, it's almost exclusively in store, right? So think about the non-prime consumer who's going to spend $1,500 on a washer dryer. They're just not going to make that purchase online. They don't, they still go to the store. That's not the sexiest VC story that we're focused on the brick and mortar space, but it's the right answer. And it took us a while to find an investor base that understood that. The second thing that I want to point to is uh, the demographic that we play in is unfortunately littered with bad actors. And it's, I think, incredibly challenging for an external stakeholder to be able to understand and authenticate who's a good actor and who's a bad actor. And so for the first few years of our business, we really had to uh, struggle with really towing the cleanest line of transparency and compliance and consumer-friendly behavior that we could, oftentimes when we're competing against people who don't maintain that same standard. And the people that don't maintain the same standard have a cost advantage. And that's just something that you have to deal with. And you know, I think it's going to take us, and we've been doing this for three years, three and a half years, I think it'll take us another year and a half to two years to reach full parity with our competitors who are choosing to uh, operate in the gray. I think we can do it. We can do it by being smarter, better, more efficient, et cetera. 
But uh, you know, it's definitely a game of catch up. But in order to attract the right talent, in order to feel good about what we're doing, in order to feel authentic to our mission, that's a decision that we had to make early. To touch upon investors, right? Caffeine has raised post debt and equity financing. How do you decide when is the right time to go for equity versus to go for debt? And in these times of uncertainty, especially when there's a higher risk of defaults, has your cost of capital gone up? Yeah. So um, every business is different. For lending businesses, the formula is oftentimes construed in a bunch of different ways, but at heart, it's pretty basic. You want to raise equity dollars to fund your operations. You want to raise debt dollars to fund your originations. Your originations meaning the dollars that you put out there against uh, you know, actual credit. So there is a pretty robust capital market out there, you know, securitizations, warehouse lines, asset-backed lines, et cetera, for debt dollars against originations. And then there is a pretty robust venture capital market out there for the equi- equity dollars against your actual operating capital. So we you know, obviously do both, and we've used both in, uh, in combination to achieve the right capital structure outcome for ourselves. On the sort of inflationary, you know, cost of capital rising point. Yeah, look, we're getting squeezed just like everybody else. I think the major difference, and it was very intentional when we started the company uh, between us and a lot of other guys is we assumed we were going to get squeezed, right? I graduated college in 99. I traded through two economic cycles. This was obviously going to occur. And we wanted to make sure that we chose an opportunity that was not going to be levered to low interest rates. And so the great thing about lease to own is that uh, in a bad market, it's still pretty good. And in a good market, it's really, really good. So we're still profitable. We have healthy margins. Um, the short-term nature of our terms, relatively short-term, they're about 12 months, means that we don't have this bloated balance sheet that suffers the same um, cost of capital and you know, margin destruction that it would be if you were holding, you know, for example, a you know, five-year auto loan book or if you were holding a 10-year solar book. And on that note, can you sort of describe the difference between financing companies that hold risk on their balance sheet versus that might operate as a peer-to-peer or marketplace model? Yeah, I sort of referenced this um, a little bit earlier when I said like it might get, you know, the capital structures are pretty consistent, even though they might get um, characterized differently. I don't think there is a real difference. And I, I realize I'm like, you know, an outlier here, but I don't think there's a real difference between holding things on balance sheet and putting them into forward flow or marketplace types of agreements. It all comes down to what you're getting paid. So if you think you're, you know, you can work out, I expect to make X dollars on this. It's going to cost me Y dollars to service it. It's going to cost me Z dollars to borrow money against it. And therefore my margin is, you know, whatever it may be, let's say five points. And if your margin is five points and you could sell the, and you could hold it on balance sheet, all right, you're going to make your five points. And if you could sell it and you can sell it for 105, you've made your five points and you get it up front. So what if you could sell it for 104? Well, if you can sell it for 104, does the net present value of the $4 you get up front uh, offset the you know, $5 you're going to collect by holding it on balance sheet? The markets are more efficient than people realize. And so it's neither here or there. If your paper is making money and your underwriting model and your strategy and servicing is strong, you'll get paid a fair rate of return whether you hold it on balance sheet or whether you send it through a marketplace lending type of structure. If ultimately the paper doesn't make money, then at the same time, your interest rates go up. For example, if you've been holding things on balance sheet, interest rates go up. 
there's no free lunch. You're not going to then all of a sudden be able to say, okay, well, I'll just sell it and move it off balance sheet because they have cost of capital considerations too. So it's really just a game of hot potato. I think the big difference for us has been from day one, we never believed we were going to get full pricing power by selling our paper. And so given that the default has always been, I'll hold it myself. And because I believe in our product, I'm unwilling to accept anything, even one point lower than what I know the paper is going to yield internally. And so I'm happy to eat my own cooking. I don't need to like convince the external world that they should buy our paper because it's going to yield X, Y, or Z. I'm happy to hold it on balance sheet and let it play out the way that I expect it to play out. So you have seen phenomenal growth so far. You have maintained positive unit economics. What's next for caffeine? I'll split that into two parts. Are you looking to hire people? And second part is that, what do you see the company doing in terms of market penetration and product offerings in the coming five years? Um, yeah. So first of all, we are hiring. Um, we're not hiring at the same clip that uh, we were in the past. You know, just given the, you know, the need to be a little bit judicious given the you know market dynamics. But we are hiring, and so to the extent that any of your listeners are looking to um, join a company like ours, I would. Love to have them send us a resume and you can do that uh, at careers at caffeine.com, K-A-F-E-N-E.com. So happy to do that. Um, In the next five years, we really think about sort of two axes of growth. The first axis of growth is channel extension and the second is product extension. So I'll talk about channel extension first. As I mentioned, we are uh, 99.9% physical brick and mortar in-store experience today. While our customers don't shop online much today, they will in five or 10 years. And so part of the next two to three year plan is to get a meaningful presence online. The other channel that we think has a lot of potential is a direct-to-consumer channel. So I've talked a lot about partnering with retailers in order to extend this financing option ultimately to the consumer. And B2B to C distribution is incredibly unit economic friendly, meaning the customer acquisition cost is, you know, for us, it's in the teens of dollars against thousands of dollars we're putting out. It's, 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 it's obviously a great way to distribute the product. But in the long run, just like most of your purchases and most of, you know, um, your listeners' purchases are made on credit cards and not at point of sale, um, I do believe LTO will move towards a um, pre-merchant acquisition mechanic, meaning approvals will be generated ahead of walking into a store. And so that direct consumer channel is a channel that we're doing a lot of interesting experimentation with. So that's the channel extension. Product extension, we are looking to solve a need for the non-prime consumer. We are agnostic to the structure that we use to do it. So we started in LTO because it's got all these great characteristics, but ultimately we will move into um, lending types of products. That'll probably move into other types of verticals like medical elective and home improvement and other, uh, it'll still be essentially largely merchant distributed or service provider distributed financing, but there'll be non-LTO products out there. For the next segment, I would love to get your thoughts on the fintech industry overall. So my first question is that, what's your opinion on the future of buy now, pay later? Do you think it has become overcrowded? And the second part to that is that, do you expect the entry of more established players, case in point Apple, entering the space will anyhow imp- will somehow impact the growth of startups or, or the uh, sort of disruptors of the market? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, 
So I think of buy now, pay later as a substitute product rather than uh, fundamentally creating new demand. The reason I say that is because almost everybody who has used buy now, pay later, not everybody, but almost everybody could either put it on a credit card that they already have or would qualify for a credit card if they chose to apply for one. Okay, So buy now, pay later isn't necessarily unlocking a new pool of consumer. Now it is absolutely facilitating ease of customer checkout and it has other convenience and clarity features that I think are pretty important. And so I do think there's always going to be a place for buy now, pay later. It's not going to go away. I don't know what ultimate penetration will be, but I do think that the penetration of buy now, pay later is really about cannibalizing unsecured revolving credit uh, purchases. Okay, So there's a substitution going on. With respect to companies like Apple, um, or Walmart, right? That are that are getting into their own financing and their own financing structures. I think it's going to play out largely the way it played out in the auto industry. Okay? If you look at the auto industry, um, auto lenders, many of them have captives, right? You can go to Ford Financial, GM Financial, BMW Financial, Mercedes Financial, right? So what they realized is they were tired of getting squeezed by their lenders, and they decided to get into lending themselves, and they realized they could move more units by subsidizing the cost of their goods, which are quite expensive, against their um, against their their lending against their lending arms. Now, it's not going to be full replacement in the same way it hasn't been full replacement in auto because it turns out lending is hard. It's really hard, and you know a company like Apple maybe can get away with doing it, but notice that Apple partners with Goldman Sachs, right? At some point, Goldman's going to extract more economics. So it's just a really a game of you know, who are you going to pay to get this done for you? Or do you want to build it all out in-house? I think at end state, there's probably a combination of um, different solutions. Your most powerful retailers will likely offer things in-house just the way that your most powerful auto retailers do as well. Um, but that's probably two, three, maybe 5% of the overall market. I think the other 90 to 95% of market will always have third-party facilitated lending providers, whether it's buy now, pay later, lenders, LTO, et cetera. Uh, it's really around just coming up with what the right financing structure is for the customer that is standing right there ready to make a purchase. My next question is more about the fintech industry overall. Do you, what are some segments that you think will drive its growth in the coming two to three years? And are there any segments that you are bearish on? Yeah, I I think you know fintech is fascinating and, and there's so many different areas that it's very difficult to be an expert on all of them. The area that we're not in that I am still really f- passionate about through the lens of financial inclusion is um, other types of financial management and wealth management tools for the non-prime and the, you know, call it the middle class. Okay? Um, most of the wealth management tools are still largely driven for the top 1%. I think that's leaving a tremendous amount of money on the table, and it's also leaving a tremendous amount of financial inclusion and social good on the table. Uh, this is a demographic that has upward trajectory and has um, extremely responsible financial behavior. And if that were able to be unlocked in the right way, um, I think that's a tremendous opportunity. For our last segment, what I'd like to do is introduce you more as a person to our listeners. And I have a couple of rapid fire questions lined up for you. Sure. The first question is, what is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um. Yeah. So uh, on that one, I guess just in terms of you know the spirit of fun facts, um, I've only surfed once in my life, but 
I have set a goal that I'm going to get incredibly good at it over the next five years. And so check back in with me when I hit my 50th birthday and we'll see if I got that one knocked out. One thing that I found really interesting is that you mentioned that you believe in the philosophy of put yourself in a position where lightning can strike. My question is, how does one do that? Um, sure. So there's a couple ways to think about that. Um, the first one is to think about in any opportunity you're facing, what are you learning, right? What skills are you learning? And then think about how unique or valuable those skills are to somebody else, right? So if, um, if you're an, let's say you're an investment banking associate, which I know probably a lot of your classmates may be, um, okay, you're learning financial analysis and financial tools, but like how unique is that skill set really? Is somebody going to come after you specifically because you are the only person in the world who knows how to do that or one of a very small set? And so just think about the scarcity value of this, the skill set you're learning. The second element is how many high quality people are you meeting? And more importantly, how many high quality people are meeting you? So to use the investment banking example again, if you're the you know fourth most junior person in a room and you're meeting with a bunch of CEOs or clients or whatever it may be, and you don't really have the opportunity to talk or demonstrate the quality of your workflow, although you're meeting that person, that person's not really meeting you, right? So you want to make sure that you are visible and that you are connected and you have role and responsibility that will allow you access points to the people who are able to fundamentally shape the future of your career. My next question is about an uh, ongoing debate nowadays that whether or not to get an MBA if you want to be an entrepreneur. And I know you didn't start your venture right after your MBA, but do you think that coming to Wharton was helpful from a standpoint of getting the right skill set for later in life when you did decide to launch Caffeine? It absolutely was, and not in the way that I would have predicted. So when I left trading and I was trying to figure out what the next phase of my career was going to be, for the first few days, I was just kind of going in circles. And then what I realized is I could lean on my network and specifically my Wharton network, not my undergrad network. And the reason I could lean on my Wharton network is because I would literally call up you know, my five friends that were in private equity and ask them to tell me about private equity. I just like literally get on the phone two hours, tell me everything you know about private equity and whether I would be good at it. And you get a really good understanding of what other people are doing. And you can use that to think about whether it's right for you. Once I'd settled on consumer lending and I knew I had my interview with Octane and it was going to be three days later and that they were interviewing me for a finance position and I didn't know anything about consumer lending nor securitizations nor balance sheets nor unit economics, none of that stuff. And uh, I was able to call again on my Wharton network contacted, you know, 10 people and said, all right, listen, like you owe me, right? From 10 years ago when, you know, we were super close, you owe me, tell me everything I need to know about what's a securitization. Let me ask you all the dumb questions. And it turns out that none of the answers in terms of unit economics, securitizations, VC dynamics, startups, none of those answers are in books. And so without a network like the Wharton Network, I don't know how I would have gotten an information. I don't know how I would have gotten enough information to be able to get the job. So it was hugely valuable for me. And my last question for you is, if you had a time machine and could go back in time, what would you tell a 25-year-old me? Yeah, I would say um, when I was 25 and people told me that they had deep professional satisfaction, I was convinced they were lying. Maybe they weren't lying to me, but I was convinced they were lying to themselves at minimum. Okay, What I would tell myself is they weren't. If you feel like anything other than absolute gratitude to be doing what you're doing professionally, 
quit, find another job. The earlier you can figure out what your passion is professionally, the better your outcome is going to be. It dominates everything else because work doesn't feel like work. You can put in 80, 100 hours a week without breaking a sweat. And the energy that you put out there will attract other people to help you in your career if you're passionate about it. If you show up at work every day and you're complaining and it's not really what you want to do, nobody wants to help you out. So, you know, the faster you can figure out what you are authentically passionate about, the better off you are. On that note, Neil, we'll take it back to work. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tarang. Really uh, pleasure to speak with you. So, um, you know, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Work in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Work in Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Thank you.